0: Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two-Door Cinema Club. Hey, it's Wilfred L And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter
1: and the Cheetah Girls movies.
0: Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us.
1: Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at zerofoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products, it's about the ethos that we embody: rugged, resilient, and timeless.
3: Ah! Uh, what's Miles? My Miles. How are you doing, Miles? <laughs> what's Miles? My Miles? M- miles? Oh, uh, I'm good. I what's ha- Miles? My gray maybe? I just yeah, had a bunch a of ice better. cream. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you're eating blue ice cream, which is going to make it look like you were, I don't know, I want to say oh, like something grossly sexual about like the Braveheart guy, because all the blue stuff. Oh, but I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I William Wallace. Out, yeah, I yeah. didn't figure out a good joke ahead of time. So,
1: yeah. Sorry. I don't know what you'd say, but I get Neither it. I get where I. you're going yeah. with it. You
3: get, uh, you, but, like you understand what the potential was.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. I okay, see the, I okay. see the elements on the table for something yeah. great. I just didn't know how to put it together either. Yeah, yeah, But yeah, well, this ice cream is so blue that it's... I, I'm a little alarmed how much I like it and I feel <laughs> like a fucking child when I order it at this place, but you know what? Who gives a fuck? Maybe yeah. I am a child.
3: Do you, What was your first thing that you ate as a kid, and then you ate it again as an adult, and you're like, this isn't food. What the fuck? What, people shouldn't have access to this. Oh my god. There's a few things, but I feel like maybe like shark bites or like gushers. Oh because no, gush no gushers are wholesome.
0: I love I mean, gushers.
3: Well, I love them love too. Nice I mean, gusher. and I remember
1: back at the old studio, we had them there. Remember, Sophie? Yeah, yeah I ordered oh, them. I, yeah, I fucking gusher. ordered yeah. them. Yeah, I remember. And I remember, but here's the thing. Not that I'm saying I disrespect them, but I remember eating them like, yo, this is
3: fucking this is just sugar. Yeah. What the fuck am I doing? Yeah. But uh, I it's it's delicious. Pure sugar. My mine was always, and I still kind of love them, is those like uh uh, what do you call it? The, the It's like the stick and then like the the pouches of colored sugar. Oh, Fun Dip? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Fun Dip. You're just like shoveling <laughs> yeah, yeah. sugar into your Dude, mouth. Those are... It's so funny. Like, what it was an just, awesome yeah. thing.
1: Yeah, just chemicals on a dipstick that yeah. you just licked over. and Like, what was that stick even made of? It's pure sugar, Miles. Yeah.
3: All, the only thing a Fun Dip it's is cancer. is just raw sugar. It's yeah. just pure yeah. sugar. I guess the
1: only thing is, that, yeah, just like the pouch that and it was in was just the only thing that was not yeah. sugar
3: no and it's like you know we, we, we're we're recording this the week that uh, i don't know when this will air but as we're recording this everyone like there's just a big store where they're like oh aspartame causes you can cause you cancer and like you look into it and it's like well if you have like between a dozen and three dozen cans a day you might get cancer as yeah. opposed to like i don't know man if everything like we're all shoveling so much crap and poison into ourselves at all times. I don't know. I I feel like diet cokes not going to be many people's primary risk factor, but whatever. Yeah. It's like, and it's
1: also it's pronounced aspartame. Okay, we all know yeah. that. That's <laughs> how we have to be saying. Aspartame. Yeah. Uh, if, but yeah. It's I think that also feels like the kind of thing that like the sugar lobby would come out with too. Oh, like what yeah. About, Oh yeah, it's costly. Oh, yeah. Unlike
3: it's, sugar, which is not associated bad, with any what health we problems. Hear about fucking sugar. Yeah. Fucking just just do whatever, guy. Like listen, Like, statistically, like, a third of the people listening to this are doing so while blanketed in wildfire smoke and, like, burning the burning remnants of asbestos and insulation. Like, it's not going to be the aspartame that kills you guys. Take
1: your aspartame, eat your blue ice cream, do it for the sword, you know? Yeah,
3: whatever. It doesn't matter. Like, every, you're fine. And by fine, I mean doomed. But everything (laughs) is. So it's okay. Whatever. Anyway. You want to talk some more about Frank Lorenzo? No, fuck, yeah, I do. So, today, you know, uh, United Airlines is kind of the descendant of Continental, and United Airlines is, like, an airline, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's like, ah, United, I have so many great United experiences. It's also not, like, the worst of the airlines. They're just kind of, like... Right in the middle. Yeah, yeah, right, right in the middle, you know? They're not as nice as, like, a smaller airline, like Alaska, but... I will take them over, I don't know, fucking American Airlines or whatever, certainly over like Spirit. Um, but I, 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 I'm never like psyched to get on a fucking uh, uh, United flight either but people were psyched to fly Continental back back in the day um, Continental was like one of the airlines as shit you know the Reagan era is kicking off you know you've kind of got like the it's like the end of the late Carter era early Reagan era is when sort of Continental is kind of starting to starting to look its age you know even mm-hmm. after deregulation they've kept their high fees and they've kept their passenger perks so, like, passengers consistently rate it as, like, one of the best airlines in the world, um, but it's not making a lot of money, whereas TI, the airline Lorenzo runs, is basically the opposite. It's a shitty budget airline that cannot make – or that, that like, makes a profit but does it because it's it's – Shitty enough for people to afford. Right. Exactly. In 1979, Continental lost more than 13 million dollars, and the bleeding accelerated in 1980. The company gets a new CEO at this time, a guy named Alvin Feldman, uh, and Alvin is generally remembered—that's that should be a spoiler—as a nice guy and a diligent businessman of the old style. And he's like, he's trying to stop the bleeding, but he doesn't want it to like change its character. He tries to like he merges it with this other company. He's hoping that like he can keep it you know, special and somehow make it profitable. But Continental, in addition to, like, dealing with changes in the market, is also feuding with their workers over new contracts. And because they're not as big as, like, American or TWA, uh, you know, they, they've, they've got a pretty small market cap, which means that you can actually purchase a controlling interest in their stock for surprisingly little money. <laughs> and Lorenzo, to Lorenzo, this is like a shark-smelling blood in the water, right? right? Yeah. So... Its total market value is like $150 million. Uh, and because, it, again, the stock market's nonsense, the company is worth way more than $150 million. If you just, like, add up all of their planes, they're worth a lot more than that, but because the business isn't doing as well as it used to be, like, their market cap is shit, and so he's able to lorenzo's able to basically like buy up a bunch of big investors who have like interests in it uh and like work out a buy like he's he just basically starts eating up more and more and more of like getting closer to a controlling interest in continental <laughs> because if he's able to to get it he'll wind up with way more value in like assets he can strip than he's actually spending on this thing. Um, So this process starts for him in February of 1981 and Feldman, when he realizes, Oh my God, this guy who is like the corporate raider of the airline industry is buying up my beloved airline. He tries to go to war with him. Right. But Lorenzo is a lot faster. He's a lot smarter. Um, dirty, I bet. Huh? And fights dirtier, and I he, bet. He fights dirty. Feldman's like a nice guy. Right. He's not He's going to try the high-minded way of fighting back, and it's not going to work for him. But like, so he, as Continental, he goes to court to try to get the CAB to rule in favor uh, of like, you know, basically saying that like, hey, for Lorenzo to buy up Continental because he already owns these other airlines is anti-competitive. But the CAB rules in Lorenzo's favor because it's the Reagan era. Texas Monthly writes, quote, While the 53-year-old Feldman remained at Continental's Los Angeles headquarters, Lorenzo was everywhere, flying around the country, lobbying legislatures, institutional investors, and even the media. Lorenzo made many promises. He wrote California officials that he had no plans to move Continental headquarters or any of its operations out of Los Angeles. He said he had no intention of firing employees. He said he wouldn't sell planes to raise money. Within two years, he had done them all.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's going to worry you. I'm not yeah. going to do that. I'm not going to like sell the planes I see here for money. No, why would I do that? Yeah. If I? Come on, guys. Come on.
3: As a rule, if you're like a regulator and like somebody starts making specific promises about what they won't do if you yeah. let them do something they want to do, there those are the things they plan on doing, right? Yeah. Like they're that's telling how them how it themselves. Works. Yeah. Yeah. So, Continental's unions are kind of the most effective defense that that Continental has against Lorenzo and Kind of working with Feldman, they come up with what what seems like a pretty good idea on paper. It's it's what's called an employee stock ownership plan, or ESOP. And basically, the idea that these unions work out with Feldman is that workers are going to buy control of the company. Um, this could work out for them because federal law gave ESOPs really nice tax breaks, um, and they're able to kind of work with some banks to get like there's like 185 million they need to get in financing for this. Um, so Feldman's on board. The union starts. Start, like making a national campaign, basically telling people, hey, you know, you have all these nice fond memories of Continental, you know, where this like prestigious airline and, you know, we want to stop these ghoulish soulless Reaganites from taking over our beautiful airline and it'll be worker owned. Um, and it's like it shows you how different the the, the world is that like the yeah. Texas legislature passes a resolution like cheering on the effort. Right. Um, <laughs> really? Actually opposing a Texas based company trying to take over the airline. Yeah. Well, because, like, if you think about it, like, I'm not going to say necessarily that there's less culture war brain poisoning, but it's different. And conservatives in this era, you know, they they voted for Reagan, obviously, but there's still this attitude of, like, well, these are working. The idea of, like, working class people taking over their own airline is going to be more attractive to a lot of conservatives than, like, letting this ghoulish, bloodless Harvard grad take it, you know? Right.
1: (laughs) Whereas now it's completely inverted. And it's like the thought of like any worker powers. It's like, Oh no, no, no. Like then firebomb them.
3: Yeah. He would post Lorenzo would post a picture of himself in jeans and a shotgun and people would be like assassinating pilots on the, on the highway, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, So there was a, this is like a potentially, you know, cool idea but there's a problem the plan needs majority approval at a shareholders meeting for like the employees to be able to do this thing and Lorenzo had 48.5% of the stock at this point which is enough to block like anything from happening continental goes to the new york stock exchange and the california corporation commissioner's office to try and like force through the esop plan without a vote but they get denied and on august 7th because it's not working out the banks who'd offered to help finance it withdraw their financial commitments and like you know it falls apart Mm. so this doesn't work uh, tragically, like the the employees are not going to be able to buy their own airlines. And so two days after the banks pull their financing, while Lorenzo continues his full court press to take over Continental, the CEO Feldman issues a press release telling all of his workers that the ESOP plan is no longer possible. Uh, he tells them, sadly, he's like, and this is like a pretty emotional letter for him, he's like, you know, we can't Get financing, you know, this has kind of sunk our chances. I'm so sorry that this failed. And then after sending this out, he leaves his office at LAX in the middle of the day, uh, goes on a little shopping trip, and he returns soon after with a package. Uh, Frank works the rest of the day, winding down his control of Continental, preparing to hand it off to Lorenzo. And then at a little after 7 p.m., Pacific Standard Time. He calls the security desk and he asks them to turn off the lights in his office. Then he gets on the couch and he shoots himself through the head.
1: Oh my god. Yeah. No. It's like it's pretty bleak. <laughs> the fuck? It's like some Paul Thomas Anderson
3: movie Yeah, shit. it kind of is. Like, it's it's this really, like, intense story. There's a lot about sign of the changing of the guard just sort of within the capitalist system. Totally. From, like, you know, Feldman. I'm not gonna pretend Al Feldman. I'm sure he wasn't, like, a, a, you know a, a fucking flawless hero but no. he comes from this era where like yeah like we're capitalists but there's this understanding of like the prestige of the business some things are it's not purely about maximizing profit as right. opposed to frank lorenzo was like no nothing matters but short-term stockholder value you yeah because then it's, it's
1: like yeah <laughs> feldman like from there of like you provide people a service and they give mm-hmm. you money and, and you want it to be fair and you give them some kind of value back and this guy's like, yeah, fuck all fuck that, all man. that shit. I'll and sell your fucking planes, dude. Get the <laughs> yeah. fuck out of my face, loser.
3: Like Feldman just can't s- exist in the era of Frank Lorenzo. So no, he, very he, like no country himself. for old men. It really is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of like this. It's one of the more like, yeah, Cohen brothersy fucking stories in the history of like modern capitalism. And that's like, actually, the, huh? that's the day that the shit fell through. Basically, that happened. Yeah, yeah, kinda of, well, like a couple of days after.
1: Right. Like, that, um, but that was like but that was sort of like the last day d- of yeah. that
3: that rule. Ooh. Yeah. And it's one of those things, it's interesting. I, I haven't seen a lot of like you know, we've got we do get to bring up the Coen brothers. We've gotten a lot of like movies about like, you know, the those the corporate ghoul or the capitalist ghouls of like the the train industry, right? Like stuff like right, that. Right, right, right. And a lot of more modern stuff. I've never actually seen this period depicted, but it's pretty like, we're going to go over some of this, like what's happening. This like battle between like the unions and the airlines and like this old attitude that's less competitive of like how airlines should be in the new one. Obviously like none of these people are, you know, when we talk about the old way of things, it is worth noting part of why it falls apart is that it can't make money because it was never, that was never the primary purpose. Yeah. So, you know, it is, it is complicated. It's certainly more complicated than a lot of the stuff we talk about, but um yeah, um frank lorenzo is like reached out to by the new york times and he issues a statement being like oh you know mr feldman was a was a great guy you know uh i'm so sorry to his family (laughs) like oh my god yeah like you don't need to say anything man we know you don't care like no of course you don't nobody expects that from you yeah your job is to not have a soul frank lorenzo it's fine he's like yeah
1: but i gotta say this stuff you know so i look human
3: you gotta say the thing Union resistance died with Feldman. Texas Air takes over Continental the next month, and in short order, the two airlines are combined, which means Frank Lorenzo now controls effectively the seventh largest airline in the company or in the country. Now, there's a downside to acquiring a big, bleeding giant giant like Continental. It is a money sink, right? There's a reason why it was on the table to buy. The airline industry is in a very new place and it's kind of reeling from all from deregulation, from all these sudden changes at the end of the car, uh, Carter era and then at the start of the Reagan era. In August of 1981, you have the air traffic controllers strike, right? And this is basically air traffic controllers, it's like a hard gig, the hours are shit, they're not making enough money, so they decide yeah. to go and on strike. If you fuck
1: up, it's disaster.
3: If you fuck up, so many people die. Yeah. But when they decide, like, most people, again, like, if you've got, I don't know, like, people who work at Albertsons grocery stores go on strike, you know, that can matter, that matters in a community, it certainly matters to Albertsons, but, like, there's other grocery stores, you know, like, right. the the, uh, the overall impact to the country isn't massive, whereas, if all the air traffic controllers go on strike, like, Good you can luck. shut, like, yeah, and, and you know, Obviously, uh, that's not something a guy like Ronald Reagan is going to think should be acceptable. He he is yeah. fundamentally against the idea that any union should have as much power as the air traffic controllers do. So he calls their strike a peril to national security, and he orders them back to work at the risk of losing their jobs. And there's still elements of this in like air unions. I think we all remember when like the stewardesses union put an end to that like uh the the fucking budget. Like the government shut down basically by being yeah. like, "Well, what if planes can't go in the air? How would you fuckers feel that? you know yeah. <laughs> right right, right, um, and this is yeah, so uh there's a yeah basically Reagan's like yeah if you guys don't go to work I'm going to fire everybody and the union calls Reagan's bluff and Reagan does in fact fire everyone and he bans all of these air traffic controllers who had struck from federal service for life uh, this is very celebrated by conservatives but it is a fucking disaster for a while <laughs> because like suddenly all the guys who make air travel possible are gone right Um. so they have to fill vacancies they bring in the military you know flight controllers and shit from the military there's control who, like, for whatever reason had worked outside the union and, like, different, like, weird little kind of niche parts of the industry, they bring in, like, f- like, retirees and stuff, uh, they bring in, like, people who had refused to go with the union on the strike, but it takes 10 years before FAA controller staffing returns to normal, um... The benefit of this for Republicans is that, as much of a fuck up as it is for the industry and for for flyers and for obviously these controllers, it does. It's almost like a death blow to organized labor. In a lot of ways you could argue that, like, you kind of have the labor movement, you know, starting up late 1800s, early 1900s, fighting for that eight-hour workday, all these other things that we get from organized labor, and labor has a, a significant degree of power, kind of up until R- Reagan crushes this strike, and it's right. it's it's like a It's an epochal change in the way Mm -hmm. that we conceive of labor in this country.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel like the last time we were talking about this was just with the the rail workers at the end of the year, and like, oh, what's the government going to do? Because the last time it was the air traffic controllers, and look where that got us. But yeah, Yeah. it is. Yeah, it's it is true. Like, you're there's so many huge fundamental shifts happening. Whether it's just like the perspective of what even a business is and what it's meant to do. And, like, who it's supposed to provide value for to who the fuck even deserves to, like, you know, demonstrate that they need better wages or working conditions. Yeah. uh, In such a, like, cynical
3: way. Yeah. Now, you know, we can talk more. There's a lot more to say about, you know... Reagan and the breaking of that strike, but that is not the story of today. And while Mm -hmm. you might expect Frank Lorenzo, obviously, to be in favor of Reagan breaking the strike, and obviously he's like, he's a fuck the unions guy, this also has a negative impact on his business because it, like, he is, when he buys Continental, his plan is to basically. Cut a bunch of like the routes that aren't efficient and launch a bunch of new routes and kind of like uses existing business to make it more effective. But like he can't actually expand or really wildly change the way his airline works and the way that he needs to. If there's this like cap on how much air travel can exist because we're right. out of fucking controllers, right? People do, like yeah. this is a problem for him. Um, and he's just burnt a shitload of capital to buy Continental. So he needs to be able to expand and show that like he can make a profit. In 1981, then, Continental reports losses of, again, when he had bought Continental, they were losing like $13 million a year. In 81, they lose $100 million. Ooh. So it's a little bit of like a, an Elon Musk type thing where it's like, I don't yeah. know, man, maybe this wasn't the best plan. <laughs> I think I can do something. Oh, Fuck my life. What yeah, I do? Oh, oh shit. You know. Um some of this is not directly his fault, but it's certainly the fault of like kind of the ideologies he's championed, this like war on you know right. the rights of labor. And did he um, do like a boxing match against another airline executive? Yeah, he does. He actually beats the shit out of Mark Zuckerberg, but at this point <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg is just like you've seen some of those old Catholic propaganda cartoons with like the babies that are in heaven before they're yeah, born. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's who yeah, he's yeah, fighting. Yeah. yeah. Like the like the Catholic anti-abortion <laughs> propaganda angel Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> uh, it was a short fight. Of Catholic propaganda. This podcast is sponsored by Catholicism. Catholicism. It's fine now. Yeah. <laughs> what here we go. what mood are you in today? It's very I, I funny. don't know. I don't know, Sophie. I don't, I don't know where I'm coming or going here. We are back, uh, and Miles, uh, mm-hmm. this is exciting. Uh, I just found out from you once. Once I started talking about Catholicism, that you are actually engaged in uh, in recruiting for a new crusade. Ah, uh, to retake the Holy Land. Yeah. Um. But because we're '90s kids, the Holy Land is kind of the ephemeral concept of playing the N64 with your with your friends at a birthday party. Exactly. Um, but there's still mines. a high death toll expected. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because as much as we love Grand uh, Goldeneye, we are going to be using actual landmines and proximity mines. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, find find miles on a Gibson Go. Uh, and yeah. Patreon. he's taking donations on both of those to absolutely to reclaim our '90s video game past.
1: And by that, um, I think you guys know what I really mean. But yeah. I'm, but you
3: know, if we're weak, gonna get the money, weak. it's about N64, okay? Yeah. Uh. So, <clears throat> 1981, Continental loses a hundred million dollars, and Texas. Texas Air is plummeting too, right? He's brought, he had like, it was looking like, wow, this guy's, he saved this company. He made it profitable. What a genius. Uh, he loses $50 million in 1981. So this is a disaster. Barron's yeah. calls it a stockholder's nightmare. And what's actually happening here is that a lot of Frank's success, the perception that he was this like master of rescuing damaged airlines was not real success, but the result of a rational exuberance. Investors liked how he talked about unions and the market was good for the kind of airline he ran, but he was making a ton of bad calls, too. After the Continental acquisition, he launched a new major marketing rollout that had flopped disastrously, making Continental, in this period, the only airline that sees both revenue and passenger load drop for the quarter. So... This is kind of revealed that he's not a great airline manager. He was just good at convincing stockholders that like that's, things were on the up. But that's and up. how
1: like all of these private equity things end yeah. up is guys who only know how to make line go up end up taking yeah. over like healthcare companies and yeah. they're like I don't know I just
3: know how to make fucking numbers look different. I, yeah, I can make the line go up. Now I will say in a little bit of like defensive Lorenzo this is like a real bad time to be running most airlines if you're not one of the top like two or three big ones you're having a lot of trouble Braniff collapses at this time so do a lot of the other old giants and most of them are like getting bought up by kind of like the controllers at the very top and Frank has like the seventh biggest airline but there's a pretty big drop off between like (laughs) the top three or four and number seven uh and what we're seeing in this period is kind of the backswing of deregulation, right? Initially, there's this huge drop in ticket prices, way more people take to the sky. But the end of the CAB's anti competitive regime also leads to an inevitable tightening of the industry. And kind of where that's ended up today, you know, we talked about it's not entirely negative. There's a lot of things that are positive about the deregulation. But the other thing, the thing that it's, Like, the way it all winds up is that today, four carriers control 80% of the domestic airline market. As former American Airlines chairman Robert Crandall told ABC, the consequences of deregulation have been very adverse. Our airlines, once world leaders, are now laggards in every category, including fleet age, service quality, and international reputation. Fewer and fewer flights are on time. Airport congestion has become a staple of late-night comedy shows, and even higher percentage of bags are lost or misplaced. Last-minute seats are harder and harder to find. Passenger complaints have skyrocketed. Airline service, by any standard, has become unacceptable. Now, Crandall is a business school too, right? And he's like, he's kind of moaning the the deregulation in part because, like, he's a guy who had succeeded in an earlier age of the yeah, airline and had pride yeah, in it, exactly, yeah. yeah. But it's one of those things, so, like, I don't know, it, it, there's a lot of downsides to deregulation. And at first, the you know, it doesn't matter to Lorenzo, but, like, by the time kind of we're in the early 80s, the industry's starting to contract, and he's just kind of, it, it looks initially, he's not big enough to, like, make shit work. He's getting eaten alive by all sides. Uh, so the walls are kind of closing in on the guy at this point, and he defaults to what was basically his only real strategy— Cutting perks for passengers and squeezing his employees as hard as possible. Frank didn't just see this as good business. There was a degree to which this is like a thing he enjoys. It's like a, a pleasure to him, fucking with his workforce. <laughs> right. I found a book series called "Flying the Line" by George Hopkins. Uh, George is a former Navy pilot and an air travel industry historian. And he, he, these he he's got like this series of books called "Flying the Line." And if you like, if you want a frustrating amount of detail about how air travel used to work. George is your boy right he will tell you way more than you ever wanted to know about how fucking airlines worked in the 70s and 80s Um, he portrays Lorenzo and again he's got an axe to grind against this guy he portrays Lorenzo as almost ghoulishly excited to fuck over stewardesses in particular quote Phil Nash, who went to work for Continental in 1966 after serving in the U.S. Air Force and later became ALPA EVP in 1980 to 1982, will never forget his first encounter with Frank Lorenzo. Above all others, Lorenzo typified this new managerial breed. At a special meeting in Denver, Nash asked Lorenzo, who was in the process of taking over Continental at the time, why he was so intent on reducing the pay of flight attendants. Didn't he know, Phil Nash asked, that many of them were single parents who couldn't afford to own homes at the pay rates he was proposing? Lorenzo looked at nash as if he were crazy quite frankly i don't believe flight attendants ought to make enough money so they can own houses lorenzo told a flabbergasted nash maybe they should find another job that pays better oh fuck <laughs> wow he's always
1: wearing his like sociopath badge mm-hmm. on his sleeve like at every opportunity he can't even he's just like yeah yeah they don't i mean they don't deserve air yeah i don't even think they're really homes. people yeah fuck them what yeah. if we
3: just shoot them
1: <laughs> like, yeah we, used it to, is, I mean, if it's up to me, we'd throw him out the fucking plane before we land and get a new crop before the next flight takes off.
3: And like, yeah, it, it's it's wild because like Nash is obviously Nash is a, is a capitalist. Nash is yeah. a guy who believes in free enterprise, but also he he does he comes from this old era where he's like, well, but they wouldn't be able to buy houses, and that's like the whole point, right? Whole like thing. everyone's supposed to be able to buy a house. That's <laughs> why you toil. No, yeah. no. <laughs> no, some people you are fucking idiots who take
1: these jobs and yeah. fuck them if they take them.
3: Yeah. Like, they work, and then ideally they drop dead at age 49 when they stop being as profitable. (laughs) So Frank's prime target next is going to be pilots. Now, for very obvious reasons, pilots tend to make pretty good money, right? And their costs are one of the more significant baked-in costs for airline management. And this is, normally when we talk about, like, the, the struggle of, like, unions against management, we're talking about, like, yeah, you got like a bunch of coal miners, right? And maybe mm-hmm. the industry changes around them or like the executives make a bad decision, but the coal miners are like doing their job. They're getting the coal out of the world and they're just getting like fucked over by the people who run the company. It's a bit different with pilots unions because for one thing, up until recently pilots had kind of run a lot of the airlines, right? So even if, you know, you're just a flyer, you're not in management technically your the guy who runs your company is probably a pilot and so are a lot of executives and maybe you worked with some of these guys so like right. when other airline unions get fucked over the pilots are usually safe you know cuz they're close mm-hmm. with management right 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 and it's like you know today we're dealing with this thing where like there's a shortage of pilots in part because there's this very unreasonably long period of time in the US where you have to like be trained and have experience to be able to be a commercial pilot um, that's like much longer than like what the requirements are in Europe, and it's a thing that like the pilots' unions have fought for because they make more money that way. I'm not blaming everything on the pilots, but it's not it's not exactly the same as like the stewardesses' union, right? Sure, sure, because they are closer to running closer to power, right? Um, so pilots have more baked in benefits, and they also like. A lot of them are, like, friends with the guys who are running their company. So one consequence of this is that when management and other airlines had made cuts, the pilots had generally been spared. Dennis Higgins, who worked for Texas International, explained, quote, Some people in senior management were extremely close to the pilots and smoothed that mess over. They spent time in pilots' homes, went to kids' graduations. It was very much a family atmosphere. So, Lorenzo obviously does not care about the pilots. He wants to fuck them over, but he understands there's an opportunity here, right? Because the pilots unions are already kind of acclimated to the idea that like, well, maybe we can fuck over some of like our coworkers and other unions as, and we'll still be okay. And Lorenzo, he's kind of like the British empire, right? He's like, <laughs> I feel like this is an opportunity. I can play these unions off against each other in order to benefit myself. Hopkins writes, quote, Lorenzo, for all his faults, made no secret of his plans, but he deviously led various employee groups to believe that he was after concessions only from other unions. At the time of his takeover, Lorenzo hosted a cocktail reception for TXI's pilots at the Houston Intercontinental Hotel. Lorenzo flatly declared that except for pilots, he intended to take the airline back to the employment levels of 1967. There are profits to be made here, Dennis Higgins recalls Lorenzo saying. We are going to continue operating the same number of trips, but we are going to get rid of some ground folks. So, because TXI's ground folks are unionized... This strategy means that the airline is going to like there's going to be some labor fighting over this, right? Mm-hmm. And Lorenzo is eager to fuck with the union. So he he his proposition is like I'm going to turn all of our baggage handlers and ticket agents into temporary employees, right? I'm just going to replace the unionized guys with temps, which is like a standard tactic today and that's starting to be more common in this period of time. Right. He also Argues that, like, well, we've got all these flights to cities that are like outlying. And so we've, they're really on like one or two flights coming in a day there. So they don't need any full time employees. So, like, for these smaller routes, we'll just hire like college students who need like <laughs> shitty part time gigs to be ground employees just when like the flight is departing and arriving. Um, And it's one of those things, part of how he's able to get by with this initially is he tells the pilots union, hey guys, I want you to keep making money, but like, we can't keep paying you all this money if these worthless ground employees are siphoning all your money away. (laughs) So what do you say? Yeah, so what do you say? (laughs) Now, all of the pilots don't buy this. There are some pilots at this big intercontinental hotel meeting that are like, well, what if we try to offer better flights and like try to make more money that way? And Lorenzo, he like, is, has a violent reaction to this idea. Uh, he, he Dennis Higgins recalls, quote, Lorenzo was openly against the better product concept. He said, the traveling public looks for the dollar sign. What they're interested in is a cheap seat. The ones who don't like our service can go pay higher prices on another carrier. He was very cynical about the public. And this is like, you can see, this is how all of air travel works now, right? It's like, fuck them. All they want is to see a cheap price. And you know what? It, we can make them pay more in the long run if we're spirit air. You know, we'll sneak in a couple of hundred dollar charges that they're not yeah, seeing. Yeah. But all these idiots care about is that they see, you know, what looks like a good price initially. We can get them to do all sorts of dumb shit if we trick them. Um, that's Lorenzo's attitude. He's kind of like one of the first guys in air travel who who sees where things are going to go here. And he is right. Like people mostly care about it being cheap. It turns out we're willing to suffer with a lot on planes as long as we don't have to pay too much. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Which, you know, whatever that's life. So, while he's doing all this, getting each union to agree to a few cuts under the promise that they'll be spared and someone else will get fired, he starts selling Continental aircraft as fast as he can. This puts like $21 million in the bank right away, and he gets another big, like $30 million loan from Chase Manhattan. Uh, he does this public stock offering to raise more money. And over the course of 83, he builds up this big war chest, right? So, suddenly, Continental has like a weird amount of cash on hand, even though they lose like 80 something million million dollars that year and everyone assumes he's doing this he's saving up money because he's gonna buy another fucking airline because that's what frank always does Mm -hmm. but he actually has a different cunning more fucked up plan he's going to break the unions once and for all and he's going to do it by declaring bankruptcy yeah yeah he is
1: Every, he like I love that every like all of his goals are just in line with making things just as fucked up for other people as possible, just enriching himself.
3: Yeah, I mean, of course, like that's the way it all that's the way it all works. But he's doing yeah. it. This is like this is one of the first times that he's really he's he, he's creating something. No one had ever done this before. So basically, his right. plan is: Hey, if you go into bankruptcy, I think you might be able to throw out all your union contracts. Right, right? Cause and their pensions how, and shit. Yeah, and no one no one knew if it would work this way, right? Like, this had not been done before, but basically his plan is like, I'll take this shit to the Supreme Court if I have to. I right. think eventually they'll rule with me because, you know, Reagan's in the fucking White House, right? I can see <laughs> where the fucking winds are blowing.
1: Yeah. Um, it's like the like, Wright brothers are fucking the unions over. It's like,
3: I don't know if you can. He's like, I
1: don't give up. We're going <laughs> to yeah. try, man. We're going to
3: figure it out, yeah. And if we do, and if it works... Welcome to a new age. Yeah, that is exactly what he's saying. And so he would claim, like, he does his appearance at Harvard the next year, and he's like, well, you know, I really failed, and we had to do Chapter 11 because, like, I just couldn't make shit work. You know, this is on me. But we have, like, notes that he was sending around the company at the time where he's like— you know, I, this is what's going to work. Like the creditors are, are, are ready for it. Like we're going to fucking kill the unions with this shit. Like that's the reason that we're doing this. And at the same Holy time, shit. he starts to execute this very slick media strategy where he's he's really playing up the company's financial problems and he's blaming it all on workers salaries, right? Like I failed. What I failed in doing is I just couldn't get salaries low enough. You know, we're paying too much on workers and that's why it's impossible to make a profit with this airline. He claimed in a speech at Harvard, quote, what we tried to do was shift the story from it being a bankruptcy to a labor problem as fast as possible. And this works really well, right? So he's he's basically, as this is going on, as he's prepping to go into Chapter 11, he's renegotiating his contracts with these unions, and instead of working anything out with them, he just keeps at the last moment when they'll think they'll, they're about ready to sign a contract. he'd be like, ah, nope, you know what, uh, I actually, I can't do this, or I can't do that. We have to go back to the drawing board. So the unions eventually decide to go on strike, and as soon as they go on strike, he, uh, he furloughs all of the non-striking employees, he, or the striking employees. He brings in scabs, um, and he declares Chapter 11, right? <sighs> so he goes into bankruptcy, and he says, well, now that I'm doing bankruptcy, I want the government to let me revoke all of my, con- my union contracts. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the plot. That's what he's trying to do here. And this write-up from Texas Monthly describes what happens next. The airline immediately shut down operations and laid off all but 4,000 of its 12,000 employees. Continental executives said the line would resume flights three days later to selected cities at the low price of $49 one-way, Returning workers would face pay cuts, increased productivity requirements, and the elimination of all pensions. The salary of flight attendants would drop from $29,000 to $15,000. Pilots making $89,000 would be paid $43,000, the same salary Lorenzo said he would take in place of his normal $257,000. At press conferences, he glassed over Continental's $50 million in cash reserves. The airline faced running out of money in a few days, he insisted. Meanwhile, union leaders and even some business executives denounced him. Wall Street analysts questioned the company's future, and competitors rejoiced. So, Frank's plan here, there's like an element of desperation to this, because no one's ever done this before. He's just pretty sure it's going to work. On September 27th, when, like, he reopens the airline and starts offering these cut rate flares, basically the whole Continental fleet remains on the ground. There were only a handful of flights he was able to actually pull out. But since the airline had technically resumed operations, he was able to ask the bankruptcy court to rescind the union contracts. Gradually, Continental starts opening up more and more flights, bringing in scabs to do all the work, Uh, but the real financial health of the company is unclear. He declares at a press conference that, like, we're doing great the same day he asks the government to release $10 million in their funds to keep the airline <laughs> from collapsing. <laughs> the unions fight back. They go on strike. They refuse to go back to work for reduced pay. But they can't stop the scabs from flooding in. And Frank is able to bring in enough workers to keep this minimal schedule operational. Now the union with the most clout and thus the most power are the pilots. And because pilots made bank, they had enough money that they were able to like draw funding from other pilots unions to fund their part of the strike. So they start using some of this money to carry out a media campaign where they're basically trying to be like all this non-union labor has made flying more dangerous. You might die in the air because of what, you know, what Lorenzo's doing. Mm -hmm. This may have been true because continental gets fined like 400 grand because the FAA sees that they're not like, They're breaking a bunch of rules, basically. But no planes crash from Continental in this period. So it's kind of hard to like, you know. Yeah, really point the finger. (laughs) It would have helped him if some people had died, is what i would say. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's really interesting is like how ugly this strike gets. So on November 22nd, two Continental pilots get arrested trying to evade a police license checkpoint. Um, Both of these guys are, I think this is like a DUI checkpoint, basically. But both (laughs) of these pilots had been they'd been driving to the homes of Continental scap pilots who were scabbing and throwing pipe bombs at their houses oh shit <laughs> they, they get caught hucking pipe bombs at scabs. oh no um, and it's like it, it, there's this like little war that goes on because the year after these guys get convicted a Houston police attendant uh, lieutenant gets charged and convicted of selling confidential information about striking continental employees to a private detective hired by the airline so oh, like my God. yeah the fucking nasty strike yeah, um, Yeah. Uh, soon after all this goes down, a court case is ignited by Frank's Chapter 11 move, and it gets a ruling from the Supreme Court. They declare that companies in Chapter 11 have the right to cancel burdensome union contracts. Now, Congress, like, seals this up. They pass legislation so that, like, CEOs can't do what Frank did, but mm-hmm. he wins, right? He gets to actually, like, do this shit.
1: Oh, he got over—so um, he's only—like, is he the only one that got it over the line, basically? That got
3: it over the line in this way, right? Like, there's right, still right, right. kind of more openings to do this, but Congress kind of makes it harder. Um right. But it works out for Frank. Um, His company is still in pretty desperate financial straits, though. And because he's the guy who had, like, led it there, you might have expected him to have suffered financially. And he's, like, making a big claim, like, well, I've cut my salary. I'm making, like, way less money. You know, we're all hurting here. This is a lie. Right. Uh Yeah. So basically he's like I'm going to drop my salary from like 260,000 to 43 grand. Um but he he's that's not like the whole story because like he's getting bonuses obviously he's like yeah. making hundreds of thousands of dollars in bonuses but he's also he set shit up so that like there's this weird he he's basically putting his money into this weird stock transaction That he's like running through an automated subsidiary, which is like doing the, the he's basically like doing like an automated stock trick where he's like buying shares and then like reselling them once they get. Anyway, the way this all works out is that he's able to buy two hundred thousand shares of uh, his company's stock at fifty cents a share for a hundred thousand dollars, but he only has to pay five thousand dollars because he has Texas Air loan him the rest of the money, um, oh. and then he resells it two years later when it's worth more money, and effectively makes like an extra one and a half million dollars for paying five grand, where he basically oh, like shit. has the company subsidize his investment. So right. Yeah, it's it, he. He's making. He's doing just fine, right? Um, yeah, so. But I mean, he's only making forty grand a year now, Robert. Yeah, only making four. He's like one of the first CEOs to be like, "Oh, if I just tell people my salary's cut, like these idiots yeah. don't understand all the ways we can fuck with stock prices." They don't know. That's
1: like a minuscule. That's not. That's. Mm-hmm. that's I don't even need a salary. It's all the yeah. fucking bonuses and the yeah. stocks. That's, that's not I where the fucking at, yeah. money
3: is. But you know where the money really is, Miles. Mm, tell me podcast ads oh yeah yeah like these podcast ads the evidence keeps pouring in at this point the facts are undeniable it's an open and shut case monopoly go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game millions of people pass go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play.
0: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
2: Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at zerofoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody, rugged, resilient, and timeless. Ah, we're back.
3: So yeah, it's really interesting. There's like during this kind of period of time Frank is also really willing to fuck over his other, like the the corporate ghouls who like make these moves possible. One of the guys who basically funds his Chapter Eleven scheme is the chairman of a company called American General, Harold Hook, and he floats Frank the money to keep Continental going while he's like fighting with the unions. Um, and the understanding is that like they they will be partners in the airline business once it gets back in the black. But Lorenzo doesn't sign anything with Hook. Like it's a handshake deal, and so as soon as the airline's making money again, uh, Hook is like, "Well, yeah, now we're running this together." And Lorenzo's like, "What do you mean? What do you mean? You thought you, you thought a handshake deal that? meant anything? Nah, bro.
1: No, that wasn't even that wasn't even to like seal the deal. I was like, "All right, yeah. see you later. Put her there," and then yeah. you left. You had nothing to do. What? No, dude, that's not even legal.
3: And it's because Hook has a lot of money, they go to court over this. And like a lot of the case winds up being around how he had used the word p- partner in these conversations. And his argument is like, Cowboys. No, when I, when I said partner, that was like a colloquial term. It's like yeah, buddy. You know, style. that's all, all right, I meant. Partner? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Howdy, partner. We're a Texas airline. Howdy, partner.
1: You know, yeah. With that, yeah. I feel like this. Yeah. We can go into business, partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's
3: kind of <laughs> what he does. You could be my business partner. Wait, so I could be your business or your business partner? Okay. <laughs> so after he breaks the pilot's union and he he wins this fight, scandals start to erupt that makes it clear how he had, like, done a lot of the business. So one of the things that he does in order to get investments is he, like, makes these deals overseas while the problems are happening with like in, like, Australia to, like, run a bunch of you know, get, get a bunch of routes for Continental. And mm-hmm. it comes out after the fact that, like, he had basically bribed the governor, the ceremonial governor of Victoria, which is a thing that exists with free flights in order to help him negotiate to get these routes. And then it <laughs> came out it that took. the judge, the U.S., the federal judge who'd ruled on their Chapter 11 case before it hit the Supreme Court, right after like the case goes Lorenzo's way he quits being a judge and gets a job at the law firm that represented Lorenzo's companies so Holy like shit. yeah this is all fine
1: <laughs> oh yeah i mean yeah i mean he's a, he's got all the right moves
3: yeah yeah he's he's it's going well for a while but more acquisitions followed like Frank kind of goes a little nuts after he, he wins this continental case. And like, you know, as, as profits start to return, he starts getting more investments. There's a lot of, you know, people are, have a lot of confidence in him because he's this like union buster. Um, So he's able to like basically work his way into taking over Eastern airlines next, uh, which is the number three airline in the country. Um, So, He is, like, I think I'm like 20% or whatever. Like, one, yeah, one-fifth of all air traffic in the United States is under Frank's personal control at this point. But also, Eastern is, like, bleeding money. And all of his companies kind of are because... After he's able to get these kind of, like, short-term investments and shit, it becomes clear that, like, well, he's just made his airlines a lot shittier, like, and nobody actually likes flying on them. Um, So, this, again, it's the same thing that had happened, like, a couple of years earlier. Like, he starts hemorrhaging money. And I'm going to quote from a write-up on avgeekery.com. Lorenzo was so heavy-handed with subordinates at Eastern that in the end, the airline's employees basically put their own jobs on the line to get rid of him. When he first arrived, he tried to turn the company around by incessantly hammering the unions to make concessions. He enlisted the help of Eastern Airlines' managers, who were company men and enforced what some called abusive policies against employees. Workers were required to adhere to very strict rules and were written up for lying about non-existent medical conditions if they called in sick to work. So many machinists were accused of theft and/or drug use that in one year alone, 262 unionized machinists lost their jobs. Psychological warfare was even waged on flight attendants who were forced to collect garbage on flights, a violation of their contract. What if a flight attendant refused to act as a garbage collector? They were fired on the spot for insubordination. So Eastern gets combined with Continental Frontier and People Express and you know, it, it's one of those things where, like, his constant cost-cutting, like, he's looking great on paper for a while, right. but everything starts to fall out, fall apart after this. And Frank, you know, is is squeezing these people too, uh, so much that, like, eventually the Eastern Airlines Machinist Union goes on strike. Um, and up to this point, like... 1989 every time the union employees had gone on strike against him frank had wound up just like beating the piss out of them so (laughs) he's pretty confident george hw bush is in the white house now he's like i got this stuff yeah hold my beer yeah hold my beer but bush doesn't hold his beer He he refuses to create a mediation board. He basically says, no, the federal government's not getting in on this. Like, you're going to handle this alone. And this is when Frank thinks back to Andrew Carnegie. So he hires mercenaries um, in order to, like, escort his employees off the airfields when they try to lock down uh, the airfields at gunpoint. Um, Like, he kind of goes, like, hard on this shit. But again, without the government backing him, his heavy-handed tactics fail. The pilots and the flight attendants unions are so like horrified by what is doing that they go on a sympathy strike. Um, he hadn't thought this was possible. He thought he'd broken them enough that this wouldn't happen. But they ground his entire – like Eastern Airlines, the third largest airline in the U.S., is grounded right after he buys it. And this just causes a cascading – like series of losses that sends him like bankrupts his companies. Right. Right. Obviously Lorenzo gets away rich, but he is his empire gets broken up and sold off. And like he gets forced out of aviation forever. Part of Uh, why is that like, the scandinavians buy continental airlines but they only do so like if the u.s government will agree to ban frank from working in the airline industry for a decade (laughs) they're like we'll pull your fat out of the fire but you can't let this guy near an airline again (laughs) holy shit he tries two years later to create an airline called Friendship Airlines, but the Department of Transportation is like, absolutely not. Like, you nearly collapsed the entire industry. We are never letting you anywhere near a fucking plane again. Um, and so he just spends the rest of his life as a rich guy. He's got like a capital VC firm. He still makes. He's still alive. He still makes a lot of money, but he's not allowed near planes anymore. Anyway. Oh,
1: yeah. Now he's doing... Oh, and look, just... He's doing venture capital. Yeah, and, he gets uh, into VC yeah, shit. And private, yeah. equity, and private yeah. equity, as it always is. As like,
3: it always is. Same the as thing I
1: learned was. was always like, whenever you think a business is like shitty, it's and like you're like, but this business was like so big, what happened? It's usually because private equity just bought it. Yeah. And it's like slowly being, ta- all the good shit is being pulled out. There's no people working. So if you like, when you'd go into like Toys R Us, and it looks like a fucking spooky ghost town, it wasn't because like, they were fucking up. I mean, like, I mean, because they were prop- profitable up until uh, private equity bought them. Yeah. Private equity starts hollowing it
3: out. Yeah. So
1: it's good. Yeah. It yeah. is good. I wonder. Now I just want to know what fucking Frank Lorenzo was up to with sav- like Savoy Capital or whatever his fucking private equity firm's up to.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that will be a story for another day. But <laughs> today was the tale of uh, of why airlines be that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why do they? Yeah. Anyway, you got anything to plug, Miles? Mines. Uh,
1: just go at Miles of Grey wherever you see at-based symbols. Hell yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Go to at Miles of uh of Grey. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen to the Daily Zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. Uh. I probably I was gonna make a joke about the pilots and the pipe bombs, but that's probably gonna get us in trouble. Probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. I would. You still want to fly? Yeah.
2: That?
3: Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Ad free. Cooler Zone Media. Whatever. We're done. Later.
0: Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website coolzonemedia.com or. Check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25 until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, some 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two-Door Cinema Club.
2: Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand, it's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless.
0: Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com.